Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. chapters 1 through 3, and I'll be reading out of uh, ESV tonight. So why are we here? Why do we exist? Why is the earth the way it is? Is marriage just an agreement between two consenting adults, or is there more to it? Who is marriage for? Why is there pain in this world? Are we really meant to work? Why is it so toilsome? Are people basically good or basically bad? Am I bad? Can I be redeemed? These are questions humanity has been asking for thousands of years. Different cultures have tried to answer it in different ways. And even today, people are still arguing about these topics. All these questions can be answered if we look back to the start of our universe. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 explains how our world became what it is today and lays a framework for how we should live our lives. The answers found in the Bible will contradict our present society's views and cause some friction. Sensibilities will be offended as the conclusions we will draw are contrary to that of the secular humanism that permeates our culture. Genesis 1, 1 1-5 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. In the beginning, God. A simple phrase that has so much meaning packed into it. At the start of everything, there was God. Without God, there would be nothing. God is the originer, the originator of all creation. His creation is purposeful and done with intent. As we look at this passage detailing the first day, we immediately see how believing God's word will put you at odds with the world. What is the first thing God creates? The planet that we're on now. That's it. Not the cosmos, not the sun, but earth. This is contrary to our society that says that earth was not created ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, but by a rather lengthy process of dust and gas colliding with each other, uh, eventually creating a large enough mass to become a planet. When earth was first created by God, it was formless. Some have interpreted this as the earth being full of chaos that must be subdued. This is a wrong interpretation of the Hebrew. The word bohu means emptiness. It does not mean chaos. The idea that our present world formed out of chaos is a Greek idea and one that is also derived from a Big Bang cosmology. You can think of the earth being void like a lump of clay awaiting a potter to mold and shape it into something. It's neutral, static, awaiting a change a blank canvas that needs an artist's touch. 
And then verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It shows that God is not distant but involved with his creation. He does not start a process then stop back to watch it complete the way we do with a CNC machine or when we tell a program to compile. He's not just clicking start and letting the whole thing run. He is active with his creation. Again, this is contrary to our culture that believes our entire universe was born out of a process. In verse 3, we have the famous line that everyone knows, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and it came into existence. After his creation, he declares it good. Do you notice what is missing when God creates the light? There's not the sun, what we think of as the source of light for earth. The secularists will use this verse to claim that we have a cosmological error and that therefore the Bible is false. However, this is not an error, but done purposefully to show that God is the source of life, not the natural world. God providing the light will happen again with the creation of the new earth. This is prophesied by both Isaiah and John in Isaiah 60, verse 19, 20. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And then Revelation 21, verses 22 through 25. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light nations will walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And then again, Revelation 22, uh, 22, 5. And night will be no more. There will be no need of light or of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then verse 5, going back to Genesis here, it concludes with, And there is evening and there is morning the first day. This is important because it lets us know that these are literal days, not periods of time. There are those that attest to the day-age theory rather than a strict 24-hour day. It's argued that each day is really a period of time or an epoch, and uh, they will quote Second Peter and say, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. However, I feel that using Second Peter 3.8 is pulling a verse out of context. It is referring to the scoffers who mock that Jesus has not returned yet. Peter is assuring us that God will fulfill his promise and that his view of time is outside of our own perspective. Additionally, the word used for day, yom, is found over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. And over 1,900 times, it's referring to a 24-hour day or the daylight portion of a day. And then most of the other 5% of the times yom is in the Old Testament, it's referring to expressions such as the day of the Lord. So if a day of our creation story was meant to represent a large period of time, why not say so? Why use a word completely out of context with the rest of the Bible? From a grammatical perspective, it makes no sense to make the argument that day means anything other 
than a 24-hour day. Furthermore, notice what is prefaced before saying the first day. And there is evening and there is morning the first day. Does a millennium have an evening and a morning? Does a century? A decade? No. What has a morning and an evening? A day. A 24-hour day. Genesis 1, 6 through 8. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The second day uh, yields the creation of the atmosphere and sky, which God calls heaven. Something to note is this is the only day of creation that God does not call good. There are two schools of thought as to why that is. The first position is that there wasn't anything new created on the second day, just a rearrangement of elements that were already in place, the separation of the waters. A separation was performed rather than something wholly new. The second position that people have is that uh, mankind was not the focus of this act of creation. The argument is that the second day is the only day where earth is not the primary focus of the creation effort. All other aspects of creation are on the earth or for the benefit of man, such as light, dry land, vegetation, celestial bodies to mark time, birds, fish, and all the other creatures to have dominion over. Personally, I don't think either position is satisfying. Um, is not the sky beneficial to man and part of this earth? And does not the atmosphere act as a shield for us to protect us from radiation? That seems beneficial to me. Conversely, making the claim that day two is rearrangement only and could not qualify as not good isn't satisfying because um, as we read with the creation of dry land, there's rearrangement and God says that it's good. So I don't think either explanation as to why the second day is not marked as good is satisfactory, but I also don't have an answer for you as to why. So I don't have all the answers. I think that's just going to be one of those questions that people will argue about until we actually meet him, and then we can say, how come day two was not declared good? Genesis 1, 9 through 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Like the separation of water in day two, we have an additional movement and adjustment to creation. Water has now been separated to reveal dry land. The plural of seas is important. Grammatically, saying dry land and sea were created would work and convey the information. However, in Hebrew, the the singular form of sea Yom, Y-A-M, not Y-O-M, like the word day, um, is it's also the name of an ancient Canaanite god of the sea and rivers. So to make clear to everyone hearing and then later reading this text, um, they they don't want God. They don't want people to think that God created any false gods. So they use the word Yamim, which is the plural form seas. 
um, the singular yom is used many times in the Bible, but when read in that concept, in their context, it's clear it's referring to a body of water, and there's no way it could be confused by as a deity. For example, fish of the sea, Red Sea, camp by the sea, great sea. So an abundance of caution, make it plural here, so when it says that God created the seas, he's not referring to false gods. <clears throat> Genesis 1, 11 through 13. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind on the earth. And it was so. <coughs> the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to their kind. And God saw that it was good, and that there was evening and there was morning the third day. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here. The second part of the third day is the creation of vegetation to fill the planet. The sun has still yet to be created. It is God providing the light, proving that God is the source and sustainer of all. Although it says sprout and brought forth, the creation of vegetation was not simply putting seed in the ground and waiting. The text says that trees were bearing fruit by the end of the day. Only fully mature trees can give fruit. An accelerated growth process must have occurred like what we see at the end of Jonah. This is from Jonah 4.6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah that he might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I also want to take some time for us to understand the ancient Hebrew taxonomy and how it's not directly equivalent to the taxonomic system developed in the 1800s that we use today. Here we see that all plant life is broken up into two groups. Seed-bearing, such as grasses and leafy greens, and fruit-bearing, such as berries and fruit trees. <coughs> From those two main divisions, it can be broken further down into kinds. For example, all citruses would be grouped into one kind. Our modern system would consider pomelos, mandarins, kumquats to all be different species. But the ancient Hebrews would consider them all one kind. <coughs> Furthermore, plants are not considered to be alive. <coughs> Sorry. Does anyone have a cough drop that I could steal from you? Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll work. <laughs> All right. I'm getting back on track here. I apologize. I'm just losing my voice here. So we'd consider it different species. They would consider it a kind. Furthermore, plants are not considered to, uh, to be alive the way we view it from a modern perspective. In scripture, nephesh is used to indicate life. It is used when referring to people and animals. 
But nowhere in the Bible is nephesh used in conjunction, in conjunction with plants. From the biblical perspective, plants grow but are not alive. This is important because there was no death before the fall, and yet man and beast need to eat. How do you eat without causing death? By eating plants. With the fourth day, we would expect the world to continue to be added to. Yet day four is the creation of the stars and planets to to fill the vastness of space. Why is that? If we zoom out and look at the creation week as a whole rather than day by day, it's clear to see that creation is balanced into two sets of three. Days one through three create the space to be inhabited, and days four through days three through six sorry that should see you four day four through six fill that space. Day one cons- uh, corresponds with day four, creation of life uh, of light, then filling the cosmos with additional light. Day two with five, separating the waters into sea and sky, filling the sea with fish and the sky with birds. Day three and six forming dry land, filling that land with animals and humans. Creation is orderly, balanced, and planned. Creation was not done haphazardly. Genesis 1, 14-19 And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let, the lights, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and that there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So what is the greater light? The sun. What is the lesser light? The moon. So clearly it's the sun and the moon. Why didn't they write sun and the moon? The same reason that in day three they said seas instead of sea. The Hebrew word for sun, Shemesh, and moon, Yarech, are both used as names of ancient Canaanite gods. By using a description of the sun and the moon, there's no ambiguity that when God creates the sun and the moon, he is creating celestial bodies, not lesser or false gods. God is not the chief God and a pantheon of lesser or regional gods. He is the only God. In addition to our sun and moon, the rest of the cosmos is created. That is, all the other suns and planets. As we stated earlier, this puts the, the biblical cosmology at odds with the cosmology of our day, the Big Bang. With the Bible, earth is first and then everything else. The Big Bang states that it's everything else, then our solar system, then Earth. A complaint is made of the creation in Genesis is that it would be impossible for us to observe the stars that we are seeing today unless they were created billions of years ago. However, just like in day three, if God can create fully mature plants, why not a fully mature galaxy? From this day of creation on, the sun will provide the light to earth rather than God himself. Genesis 1, 20 through 23. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. So again, mirroring day two, five involves the water and the sky. The water's filled with life, and the sky's filled with birds. It's safe to assume that all marine life was created that day, since the term living creatures is used rather than fish. However, if they had used the word fish, it wouldn't necessarily exclude what we would consider other marine life, because with the taxonomy that we end up seeing in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we learned the Hebrews have no word for whale or other cetaceans. They get lumped in with fish rather than separating it out as mammals the way we do. We tend to think of day five as fish uh, because of the art and teaching lessons we've encountered growing up. My speculation as to why it gets reduced to fish only is you get that nice alliteration with the word fowl. You can go day five, fish and fowl. And also, no one is going to paint a squid to teach kids about creation. They're going to paint a nice happy fish instead. So I think that's where that misconception comes from. But it's all creatures of the water, not just fish. With day five, we also see something new, a blessing and a command. God blesses the creatures and commands them to multiply. Unlike with day three, this implies that the creation of these animals is not total and fully across the world. There's plenty of space for them to increase. It also shows that while plants, the earth, and the sky are creations of God, they are not on the same level as living creatures. There is no blessing for the sky, for the waters, the plants, or the earth. The living creatures were blessed, and with that comes a responsibility. And now we've made it to the last day of creation. Unlike the other days, a second uh, telling of the account is given, which we will read in chapter 2. But first we'll look at the telling in chapter 1. Genesis 1, 24 through 25. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In the sixth day, we see creatures being made to fill the dry land that was created back in day three. Again, that mirroring. Again, we see a different taxonomy than ours. It gets broken down to creeping things. That would be insects, reptiles, etc. Beasts, that would be things like lions and bears. And then livestock, sheep, goats, cows, etc. And just like plants, they then can be broken down into their own kind. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. From the outset, we see that humanity is different from the rest of creation. Humanity is to have dominion over it all. We're given the keys to the family car, so to speak. Creation doesn't belong to us, but we are to rule it. 
This implies a responsibility. Now reflect back on what when God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Who is he talking to? Some scholars will say that this is polytheism leaking through and that the Hebrews weren't actually monotheistic. Um, this is doubtful because think back to the, descriptor, the descriptors used instead of using the word sun and moon and see to prevent people from mistakenly believing that lesser gods were created by him. Why take the effort to prevent miscommunication on that front, but then leave it in plural form when God is talking to himself? Yet there's others that say he's talking to angels or other beings of the heavenly host. Again, this is doubtful since there's been no mention of angels up, uh, in the creation story so far. Um, and that throughout the Bible, man is referred to as being made in the image of God, not as the image of God and angels. A third group of scholars believes that it's the use of the royal we. So in English, we see this when a monarch says things like, we command you, instead of I command you, or we have decided to. However, you don't see the use of the royal we in any Near Eastern writings. It wasn't a concept that they would have been familiar with. It'd be odd that you would use it for this one creation account and then it would never be seen from again. The us being referred to, it's simple for us as modern readers to ascertain what it is. The us is the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is mentioned right in verse 2. God's Spirit was hovering on the face of the water. The us God is talking to is Jesus. So now we're going to go into uh, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then again, John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. See, more proof of this in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is one God, the Father from whom uh, are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through all whom we exist. And then in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now we're going to go back to Genesis, now that we've got our proof that the yes is actually the Trinity. And we're going to take a look at how it describes the creation of man. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, they were created. Not, bi not non-binary, not gender fluid, not transgender. Male or female. This verse is a stark contrast to our current society that says gender means nothing and that you can pick whatever you want to be. No, we were created male and female with no say in the matter. You are what you were created to be. Genesis 1, 28 through 31. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of heaven, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God here gives another blessing, and with it, the command to multiply. Now consider what our world tells us. We're, we're being told that there's too many people. We're being told not to have as many children or to not have any at all. They've taken this command of God and turned it upside down. And then after creation, God gives the proclamation that all plant life shall be food for all, all of creation. The original intent of creation did not have omnivores or carnivores. Everything and everyone was an herbivore. Death was not meant to be a part of creation. It is permissible now to eat meat. We see this in the covenant to Noah after the flood. Everything that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. We also have Peter in his vision. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So you can eat that steak now, guilt-free, but know that in the new earth, we're all going to be herbivores again. We see this in the prophecies of both Isaiah and John as they describe the new earth. This is Isaiah 11:7. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And then Isaiah 65:25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Revelation 21, 3-4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor passing, uh, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we will eventually get back to the original intent of there being no death, and we'll all just eat plants again. At the end of the sixth day, God reflects on creation, and he declares that it's very good. To model how we should live, God then rests on the seventh day to complete the first week. Since this command is given before the covenant of Abraham, it is a universal command for all of humanity. We are designed and expected to have a day of rest each week. This runs counter to the hustle culture of our society that regards rest as weakness. Overwork is celebrated and is regarded as a virtue. In Genesis 2, 1-3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he had rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work as he had done in creation. Man is unique within creation. Now that we're in chapter 2, we'll get an in-depth look into the creation of man and the role that he's been given. Uh, the back half of Genesis 2-7 then the Lord formed the man 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So unlike other creatures, man is formed from the dust of the earth. If we were Hebrew speakers, this connection would be very clear. Their word for ground, Adamah, is related to the word for man slash mankind, Adam, which we get the name Adam. Their very language reflects that man comes from the ground. However, without the breath of life from God, we are dead and inanimate, nothing but dust. God is what gives us life. Genesis 2, 8 through 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here within creation, God creates a special place for man. It is a garden filled not only with food, but also the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is the tree of life? There's not much recorded about it. We know that it's a unique tree that was in the center of the garden that had the ability to extend or sustain life for mankind. There is also no prohibition from eating it, as a lot of times people mistakenly believe. They lump it in with the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil. But, however, after the fall, humanity is then cut off from the tree. This is Genesis 3.22. Lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is not a punitive action, but protective It is God protecting man from living forever in his fallen state. The tree of life, however, will be created again in the new earth. Back into Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And then we'll look more into the tree of knowledge of good and evil when we get into chapter 3. After creating the garden and man, singular man, meaning Adam, not all of humanity, um, we see that he's alone. So why was there only one human made at the start of the day when all of creation he creates many. Genesis two eighteen through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in uh, its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
The reason that only Adam was made was to show that men and women should live together. Notice what God says. It is not good that man should be alone. Throughout the creation narrative, God has been declaring things good. This is the first time he states that something is not good. That is because man is incomplete. By having him start alone, God is able to show Adam and subsequently humanity that men need women, that they are designed to be together. This is further emphasized by God creating a woman from man rather than from nothing. She is intrinsically a part of him. Also notice that Adam did not find Eve, but that God brought her to him. God is the one who created the institute of marriage and sexuality. Contrary to our society, we were designed to be one man to one woman. Not man-man, not woman-woman, not plural marriage. One man, one woman. And now the part that we all know is coming, but we dread, the fall. There's no indication of the time between the creation and the fall. We know that it couldn't have been in the first week of creation because God declared that those days were good, and obviously sin is not good. We also know it couldn't have been too long of a period because Eve had yet to conceive and birth children. Was it a week? Was it a month? We have no way of knowing. Regardless, in the grand scheme of time, it was pretty soon after creation. Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, took of its fruit and ate. <coughs> and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here we see Satan, one of Satan's favorite moves, distorting the truth. Did God actually say? We see this in our life whenever we're tempted. Well, is it really wrong for me to do this? Or don't I deserve this? Oh, well, it's not going to hurt anybody. We also see some confusion in Eve. She states, Neither shall you touch it lest you die. That was not God's command. God said, For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did God add to God's command? Sorry, did Adam add to God's command when he shared it with Eve? Because Eve was not created yet when Adam was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We're given no indication that God reiterated it to her, so we must assume that as the head, Adam relayed the information to her. So did he, as the Pharisees famously have done, add fence post rules to it with the logic, well, if you can't touch it, you also can't eat it. Or was it just something that Eve came up with it on her own? Regardless, this confusion aids in helping Eve disbelieve God's command. 
Also, why did Adam not do anything to stop her? And why did he also partake? It says that he was with her, so he couldn't have been far off as some depictions portray. You watch some of these different uh, perversions people have done, and like Adam's just way off, like swimming or something like that, and like she calls for him. But that's not really the indication we get here from the text. It says that her husband was with her. So as the head, Adam's responsible for all this happening. And we see this once the curses start being doled out. So what is the tree of knowledge and good and evil? Why did it exist? It was a tree put in the garden to give Adam and Eve a choice, to obey God or to disobey God. It was not a sinister or evil thing. Remember that God said that his creation was very good. Without a choice, would man really have free will? Or would man just be an automaton? Without the ability to choose, man would not be free. Adam and Eve already knew good. They knew the creation around them. Adam named the animals. All of that was regarded as good by God, so obviously they knew good and they communicated with God. But by disobeying God, their eyes were open to what evil is. They had become tarnished, and they experienced shame. Then brings another question, who or what is the serpent? Why did I refer to him as Satan? Um, I do that because of Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, and elsewhere in the Bible. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's a lot of speculation whether this serpent had legs or wings uh, that were then lost as part of the curse. Some people say that, well, maybe snakes move differently during the fall, that they were a more upright posture and didn't slither on the ground. Um, Some people say that, well, Satan possessed a serpent, and was controlling it. Others say that he made himself appear as a serpent, citing 2 Corinthians 11.14. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So some people think that he disguised himself to look like part of the created order. Um, But yet there's other scholars that argue that the serpent in Genesis 3 is actually a seraph, one of the types of angels. I don't think it's really beneficial to get hung up on what exactly was in the garden with Adam and Eve when we know exactly who it was. The form doesn't matter. It was who it was. And it was Satan, and he manipulated them into disobedience towards God. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. If you've ever worked with children, or you have any yourself, you recognize what's going on here. God knows exactly what happened, 
He knows what they've done, and they, he knows exactly where they're hiding. His line of questioning here is not because he's ignorant of it, of the facts, but he's giving them opportunity to confess what they have done. Notice that they are ashamed to be in God's presence. Since they have sinned, they are marred, and they know it. They know that they are not worthy to be before God. And look at Adam's response when confronted about his sin. He blames Eve. But not only that, he tries to frame it as God's fault. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, applying that without God giving Eve to him, that he wouldn't have sinned. All right, this, of course, is wrong. And just like Adam did not take responsibility and refused to eat the fruit, he again is not taking responsibility for his action. Likewise, Eve also passes on the blame. Oh, the serpent deceived me. You didn't have to to eat it. You can be deceived and still have your choice. Um, And unfortunately, we do the same in our life. We sin and then we blame others. Or we say that our situation forced us to have to sin. But in Matthew 4, we see Jesus being tempted by Satan. And Satan uses the same technique here. He misquotes God to try and sow seeds of doubt. He promises Jesus that he can be his own God and not have to follow the Father's will. However, unlike Adam and Eve, the new Adam does not sin and does not fall into temptation, enabling him to be our sacrifice and Savior. And while God gave Adam and Eve an opportunity to confess, he does not do so for the serpent and immediately curses him and then Adam and Eve. This is Genesis three fourteen through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the chief curse brought upon the serpent is that one day he will be defeated by an offspring of Eve. Man has been cursed due to our sin, yet God set about redemption for us through Jesus. The curse for women increases their pain in childbirth. We see from the curse that childbirth uh, didn't cause pain until there was the fall and there was sin. The second curse for women has been a source of conflict in every generation. That instead of being under her husband's headship with satisfaction and contentment, women will chafe at being under his leadership and desire to be under their own rule. So the friction we see in our society today, should it be men, should it be women, it's the, it's the same, same fight that's been going on. And then man's curse it falls not only just upon him, but on the earth itself. So we now have thorns where there was a perfect creation. Work is now hard and difficult. 
And what was pleasurable has now been distorted. Basically, work in the garden was great, satisfying, but now we've got the work that's toilsome. And in addition, we now have a physical death, something that was contrary to our created nature. So we're going to look at Genesis three fourteen through 19. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree in life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And here we see that despite disobeying God, he still provides for them and the rest of his creation. He clothes them, and then he protects them from having to live forever in a fallen state. So why do we believe this story? Most of its teaching runs contrary to our society's views and norms. Why not call it mytho-history, an allegory, a morality tale? Why do we take it as truth? Jesus himself regarded it as true. When asked about marriage, Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24. When, when Jesus quotes scriptures, he references, he references Genesis more than all the other books combined. Granted, not all of his references were from Genesis 1-3, through 3, but it's clear that Jesus sees and views the book of Genesis and thus the creation account, as literal truth. Can we claim to be followers of Jesus, but reject what he holds as truth? Surely not. I would like to end with a passage from Hebrews. It shows us that uh, it's important for us that even though believing this collides with our culture, it is important to believe in God's truth and word. So this is Hebrews 11.3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All right, question time if anyone has any. I know I went a little fast. I was scared I was going to run out of time. Yes. At, at the end there, that, that's God providing for them. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Um, that instead of just sending them out with nothing, he's giving them at least good clothes to start out. Yeah, but, but are you asking, like, do I regard that it was from an animal? Oh, yeah, yeah, because it, um, it says that it's, it's animal skin. Yeah, so, um, like in the the translation I was using, it it says um, garments of skins, which would, oh, it's it's singular. So, you could also have one of those debates that the answer doesn't really matter. What kind of skin was it? Was it cow? Did they go out in leather? 
New Living says animal skins. Any other thoughts? Yeah, my, my big issue with the day-age theory is that if you were reading the Bible in a vacuum, you'd never come to that conclusion. To me, it's more of people trying to shoehorn society into the Bible. And it's when people go, oh, you believe the Bible isn't that where it's, oh, you think the world was created in a week and blah, blah. Oh, no, no, I don't, I don't believe that. I believe the same thing you do. I just believe that God was behind it. And to me, it feels more of that, that it's a a shoehorning external ideas into the Bible rather than reading it and saying, what is it view? Because if you didn't look at it, uh, like if you looked at it, you didn't know anything of outside society, you'd never come to that conclusion that says day. You're like, oh yeah, that could be 10,000 years. You'd never come to that on your own. So that's, that's my big issue is that it, feel, it feels that it's more of trying to fit the world into the text rather than extrapolating and learning what's in the text and taking that out. What I like is that the redemption we have is that it's it's going to go back to the way it was intended to be. So you can, uh, if you read the first couple chapters of Genesis and the last couple chapters of Revelation, there's a lot of mirroring that you'll see between the two of them. And you can sort of think of it as, as bookends to the Bible itself, is that you've got the start of creation, sin, you need a redeemer. Everything in the middle, we have a redeemer, it's been made anew, and it's sort of a, it's just, it's a, just a very beautiful picture there that the things will go back to the way it's intended to be. Which, again, is contrary to what the world and other religions say the end is going to be. And that's really the, the theme that sort of comes up as you study uh, creation story in depth is that Basically, everything that happens, our society is saying the opposite is what we should do. And it's just that rebelling against God and the order of the way things should be that man is doing. Um, and I think that's part of why there's a lot of attack towards the creation account is that if you can discount creation, 
well then I'm free to do whatever I want. Uh, there's not there's not rules that I'm bound by. If I want to do these things with that person, I can because that's what I want. Rather than God saying, "No, it's it's man and wife, and that's that." You don't get to go. You don't get a second wife. You don't get a third wife. Right? Which in the Bible, whenever you see those people going out, get second, third wives, and more, nothing good follows from it. There's always bad. So even though it explicitly doesn't say, do not add another wife, it's pretty clear from the creation that's one man, one woman, and then subsequently we see the example of people breaking that, like with with, uh, Abraham, with Sarai and Hagar, with Sarah and Hagar, right? Conflict is born out of that rather than just staying with Sarah the whole time. With that, I guess uh, we can close with prayer and we can visit and chit-chat before the kids come up. Lord, we thank you for uh, the creation that you've given us to live in and be a part of. We thank you that you've given a way for us to be redeemed from our sins through Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, you have chosen us to be uh, part of your of your children and that we will be redeemed and that we will live forever with you in the new earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.